Have a seat. Well, welcome everyone to the Vine. Uh, it's so good to see that there are many families represented, undoubtedly, uh, because of Thanksgiving and the fact that there are some in town, but uh, you are all welcome here. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vine. And uh, now, a few minutes ago, we sang a song entitled, Not In Me. And uh, this song, it shares many examples about how our right standing with God, so his saving work, uh, his transforming work in our lives, it's not because of anything we've done, but because of everything that he has done for us. And this captures the essence of the gospel narrative, this idea that Jesus came to the earth as God's son. He lived a perfect life. He died upon the cross and rose again from the dead in order to do something that we could never do, namely, to endure the punishment that we deserve for sin and to give us new life in him. And so what this means for us most practically is that all who have trusted in Christ for that forgiving work, that we no longer need to carry the burden of proving ourselves to our performance or fearing the eternal separation from God that we deserve due to our failures and sin. Because our confidence, it's no longer in ourselves, but again, in the performance of God to do what we could not do on our own. Now, interestingly, this theme of dependence on God, it isn't limited to the gospel of Jesus Christ or limited even to the New Testament, that latter portion of the Bible. The idea that we must have our confidence in God can be observed through all of Scripture. And it's going to be the focus, actually, of today's text from the book of Exodus, chapter 4, verses 18 through 31. Now, for those of you who are joining us today for the first time, You should know that we preach expositionally here at the Vine. What that means is is that uh, when we come to God's Word on Sunday mornings, we're working our way through books of the Bible. And so if you have a Bible, we encourage you to bring it um, so you can follow along with the passage. If you don't, we have Bibles that are on the back table you can have and keep to yourself, or you can pull it up on your smartphone, uh, or also follow along on the screens. So in review of where we've been, Thus far in Egypt, let me give just a few passing comments here to prepare our minds for where we're going. Uh, The book of Exodus, it is about the saving work of God to save his people, Israel, from slavery in Egypt. And over the last few weeks, what we saw is that God began raising up this man, Moses, a descendant of Abraham, to be the ambassador of God's saving work. And what we learned last week in particular is that Moses is far from perfect. He is at best a reluctant servant of God who has repeatedly challenged God's judgment of even choosing him for this mission. And this takes us to today's text. You see, Moses, after escaping from Egypt, where his life was in danger, he's now lived in Midian for 20 years. And in obedience to God, he's preparing now to head back to Egypt to challenge Pharaoh the king in order to convince him through miraculous signs to let God's people go. And so I'm going to invite Hannah to come on up and uh, you can follow along as she reads the text for us from Exodus 4 verses 18 through 31. This is what the Holy Scripture says. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, 
Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed, and when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Hannah. Let's pray together. Lord, we come now uh, to you asking for your help to hear and understand the mysteries and the wonders of your word. Thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us alone in this world without uh, the opportunity to understand and know you, that we uh, have the ability through your word to pursue uh, your very thoughts, to better understand your heart for your children, and how it is that we can have full assurance and faith in you because you are a God who cares and who longs to be known by your children. So God, reveal yourself and soften hardened hearts this morning and opened ears that are not hearing. Lord, may uh, may we see as well. Remove the scales of blindness. Lord, and do the work that only you can do by your grace and through your mercy, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, when I was in high school and in college, there were several opportunities that I had uh, to be recruited to take a summer job where I was, would be selling books door to door. I don't know if this ever happened to you, and I never ended up doing it, but I do remember uh, going to a few of the presentations about it. And what these recruiters attempted to do uh, to instill confidence in their sales force was that uh, they, they used this principle. See, they had observed over the years of selling books that, uh, that there is an, this what I'll call an anchor principle that emerged. And, and the principle was this. If you followed their specific sales technique, it would guarantee you a 20% success rate in sales. And what this meant is that you could have confidence, at least if you trusted the statistics, that, that when you followed this anchor principle, one of every five doors you knocked on would say, yes, they'd buy some books. 
Okay, and this was a compelling perspective because for these, uh, these sales reps, these, at least these prospective sales reps, they knew that if they followed this principle, well, what? I could get a pretty good income from it. And the principle, it also eliminated this sense of fear that often arises in sales, right? There's this thought, well, for every four no's, I'm going to get a yes, hopefully. And so you go out with more confidence. You're more willing to consider taking on this task. Now, what I want us to see here in this example is that there is a human principle that is at play. Namely, that people need to have confidence in some kind of truth. That they need to trust in something outside themselves in order to bring them success and happiness. Not just to their jobs, but I would argue to all of life. Now, if you think about it, this really is the essence of the Christian faith. Um, There is a traditional hymn lyric by Edward Mote that many of you may have sung if you grew up in the church. And I think it gives us a vision, a concise vision of this anchor principle when it comes to the gospel. It reads, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. See, though we live in a world that tries to convince us that self-confidence is the secret to our success, what we're going to see in today's text is that the Bible stands in complete opposition to this idea. See, the Bible teaches us a complete contradiction to this popular worldview. So as we consider what it means to not put our confidence in self, but put our confidence in God, the first thing that we're going to see this morning is that we can put our confidence in his resources and authority. So let's look again at verses 18 and 19. Now, to better understand these two verses, I'm going to substitute the word and in some of your translations for for. Because uh, in my research, I found it's a slightly better translation from the original Hebrew. So, though you can follow along in your Bible, you'll see on the screen in particular where I make this change. Okay, Verse 18, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace, for... The Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. Now, what what this slightly improved translation shows us is that God spoke first to Moses, verse 19, and then Moses spoke to Jethro. Now, this is important to see because it clarifies that God was the one who gave Moses the confidence to leave for Egypt. Go back to Egypt, Moses, for all who are seeking your life are now dead. So placing his confidence in God's word to him, he was ready to go. He was ready to seek out safely uh, his return. And so Moses went to his father-in-law, Jethro, and he politely asked his blessing to release he and his family so they could return to Egypt in order to confirm the health and well-being of his people, the Israelites. So look at verse 20. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now here we learn for the first time that Moses had several sons and that his family was now heading off to Egypt. But 
Before we move on, it's important for us to not miss the significance of what's happening at the end of verse 20. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Now, if you recall from last week's sermon, the staff of God had become the means by which God would show his power to Pharaoh through signs and wonders. And and we're going to see this throughout Exodus. The staff will continue to be a symbol of God's power and his authority. So it's by no mistake that at the end of verse 20, it's emphasized. Moses grabbed his staff, the staff of God, and departed to Egypt. Like, Like a soldier... Grabbing his weapon for a special assignment, Moses was leaving for Egypt with the resources of God beside him and the authority of God behind him. Now, I know it's difficult when we're in a series like this to really relate to an ancient story, but, it, but it's helpful for, to, for us to recognize this, that though we don't have the staff of God by our side, and we aren't heading out on mission to save people from slavery in Egypt. As Christians, we do have resources beside us and the authority of God behind us. Now, I'm not going to take time to read it now because of time, but, but for those of you familiar with it, I just want to draw our thoughts back to a letter, uh, Ephesians chapter 6. And I'd encourage you to look that over if you haven't read that before. But what you're going to see in in that chapter is all sorts of resources that are available to those who are in Christ. And in this passage, the Apostle Paul uses this word picture of a soldier with his weapons and his armor to represent these spiritual resources. They are resources like the truth of the gospel. They are resources like the righteousness that we have through Christ. They are resources like the faith and confidence that we can put in God through the sword of the Spirit, and the, which is the Word of God in truth. And so Paul's encouraging us to put on these qualities of Christian faith, to embrace them most fully through a life of prayer that is depending on God, that is crying out to Him, that is inviting this embracing of these qualities and these resources that are ours in Christ Jesus. And so, not unlike Moses... Those of us who are Christians, we too have resources. We have the resources of God and the gospel that are available to us in Christ. But we not only have his resources, we also go in his authority. Matthew 28, 18 and 19, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So here God, he's sending us out as he sent Moses out, not to save Israel from slavery, but to bring salvation from the slavery of sin to every tribe, tongue, and nation. So as ambassadors, we as Christians are sent out with the authority of God behind us. So how does knowing this, how does knowing that the resources and authority of God are available to you, how does it change the way you live your life? How does it change the, your obedience in mission? Uh, Charles Wesley, I guess I'm quoting a lot of hymns today, but in the, he's an English hymn writer, and he, he reminds us of God's resources available to us in the words of this old hymn. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh, it will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece 
put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. So so we've seen that we can put our confidence in God's resources, that we can go in confidence knowing that his authority is with us. And next we're going to see that we can put our confidence in God because he is our father who cares for us. Look at verse 21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So as Moses heads out to Egypt, he does so once again, being reminded of God's purpose for him. Namely, to show God's power through miraculous signs. And we learn that in the end of verse 21, this phrase that's going to come up again and again throughout this narrative of Exodus, namely, that God will harden the heart of Pharaoh, meaning that Pharaoh will stubbornly resist the pleas of Moses to let the people of Israel go again and again. Now, it's important as we think about this idea of God hardening Pharaoh's heart that we not get too sidetracked. And and there's a couple of reasons that this is the case. The first one is that this is going to be a recurring theme. So we're going to be developing an understanding of what this means throughout our series in Exodus. But the other reason I don't want us to get too distracted by the questions that arise that God was actively involved in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is because we must not forget the ultimate purpose of this Exodus narrative. The ultimate purpose is to demonstrate that God is in control and that he is advancing his plan of salvation. And that even though a wicked king was brutally enslaving his people, God would ultimately prevail over this evil in his time and in his way. So the real issue here, the big idea here, is not that God worked through Pharaoh's sin to advance his cause, but how the Bible again and again emphasizes that our creator God, he rules over all things in heaven and on earth. Psalm 103, verse 19. Now there's one other nuance to this text that we can pick up in verse 22. Let's look at that. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Now, the interesting idea that's introduced here is the significance of the firstborn son. And this is actually the first time in the Bible that Israel is referred to as God's firstborn son. And it's interesting because we know, in a biological sense, Israel's not God's son. But what this means is that Israel's sonship was given to them through God's promise to Abraham, that they would be his people and that that he would be their God. And this helps us to see that the saving work of God in Exodus, it's not rooted in Israel's success, it's not rooted in their faithfulness, but it's rooted in their sonship. And so it makes sense in verse 23 that if Pharaoh refused to release God's son, that he would pay for it with the life of his own son. And those of you who are familiar with this story, you know that later in chapter 11, the final uh, plague to come upon Egypt is 
the death of the firstborn sons as a final act of judgment against them. Now, as we think about this idea of God as the Father and his relationship to his son Israel, let's, let's consider this in our own experience. Um, those of you who have children, by, you know, the, the, either adopted or biological or, or even fostering as you welcomed in children, there is really nothing in this world like the parent-child relationship. Okay? Now, though, of course... There are plenty of terrible parents in, the, in this world, right? There are plenty of difficulties we have in parenting and, and in being the child of a parent. Those who've given themselves to being loving parents, in other words, doing the best they can with the resources they have, what you begin to understand is that that relationship is not conditional. Okay, no good parent looks at a crying baby and says, what's in it for me, right? This is because parenting is by its very nature an exercise in self-sacrifice for the benefit of another. Now, though over half of all marriages in our culture end in divorce, how often do you hear of a parent divorcing their child, right? I mean, it's not even possible, or at least you might hear a rare occasional case that's similar. But the, the reason I, I would argue that this is the case is because even the world around us sees the parent-child bond as a relationship that's based on more of really a promise, a commitment, more than it is just of convenience, so when you have a child, if you're, if you're a good and a faithful parent, you're committing your life to support them through thick and thin. No matter what they do to you, they will always be your son or your daughter. And it's this kind of bond that God is describing in his relationship with Israel. He is the faithful one. He is the God of the covenant. He is the father who loves and adopts and cares for his children. But God takes this picture even one step further, because he says that Israel is his eldest son. Now, in ancient cultures, to be the eldest son is to hold greater authority. It's to have greater inheritance than the others. And so this is a pretty amazing truth. That in essence, Israel was adopted into God's family, not just as a son, but as an, as an eldest son. Now, what's equally amazing in this is that the Bible says something very similar of those who are in Christ. We, too, have been adopted as God's sons and daughters with all the privileges of our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Galatians 4, 6-7 says, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, do you see this parallel theme? I, find, I just love the Bible. It's so filled with treasures like this. This theme of slavery to sonship, that it's not only a theme we see so clearly here in Exodus, but also in Galatians for the church. It's so beautiful. So for those of you who are Christians, do you see God as a loving Father who cares for you? Again, do you see God is a loving Father who cares for you. The whole course of salvation history is one where our Father is drawing us close as his sons and his daughters. We see it in Israel's narrative as God calls them son, and we see it in our relationship with God as we refer intimately to him as Abba Father. 
So we've seen so far, we can put our confidence in God's resources and authority and our confidence in the fact that he is our Father who cares for us. Let's now see how we can put our confidence in God's covenant community. Now, to be clear, verses 24 through 26, as you may have picked up on in our reading earlier, it is one of the more mysterious passages in the book of Exodus. Now, to help us understand what's happening here, I'm going to read to you a translation on the screen from the original Hebrew by an Old Testament scholar by the name of Peter Enns, because it gives us a more clear understanding of what's truly going on here. So uh, be sure to follow along with me here now from verses 24 through 26. Now, at the lodging place along the way, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. So Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off the foreskin of her son, and touched his feet. She said, You are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. Now, one commentator that I read um, believed this scenario. He believed that on the journey from Midian to Egypt, Moses had fallen sick. Perhaps he was having a seizure or he was struck with some terrible fever. And that somewhere in those moments, Zipporah discerned as our wife's often so beautifully can, she discerned what was wrong. What she recognized was they had not been faithful to circumcise their son. And so she circumcised him and then touched the blood of the circumcision to Moses' feet, and he was healed. Now, in my mind, I like that scenario. That seems very easy, much easier to understand than, than at first reading. But no matter how we interpret it, what nuances we bring to this interpretation, there are three things that are clear. One, God was upset with Moses. Two, he was upset with him because he hadn't circumcised his son. And three, Zipporah's circumcision of their son appeased God's anger. Now, you may be asking yourself, what's the big deal with circumcision? Why was it so important? Well, if we look back at the previous book in passages like Genesis 17, 23 through 27, or Genesis 21, 4, and I would encourage you, we did a whole series out of Genesis. You can go back and review this in more detail. But in those passages, we see that circumcision was something commanded to Abraham as a confirmation of God's covenant with Israel. Um, if you've heard the phrase, signing your name in blood, it's 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 kind of like that. There is a sense there that circumcision, it's like signing the dotted line, acknowledging God's promise to flourish his descendants through Abraham, making them into a great nation for the blessings of all people. So if you were male and you wanted to be a covenant member of the people of Israel, you had to be circumcised. There's all sorts of records of, of adult males converting to Judaism and, and doing it uh, through, in part, circumcision. Again, it was kind of like signing your name, like we did a few weeks ago, signing your name to the membership covenant. That was one, one expression of this truth. And so it's a bit of a problem now with that in mind to imagine that Moses was going to be a spokesman to Pharaoh on behalf of God's people, and yet he had never obeyed God's word by circumcising his son. He was, in essence, an ambassador of God with a family that was living outside of this covenant commitment. Now, one way of looking at this in a modern context, and I understand it's not a direct parallel, so I'm not trying to say it is, but, but just to envision this idea a little bit more for us, let's think about church membership. What does it mean to be a member of God's family, the church? 
You see, it's a very important part of the Christian experience to covenant ourselves with one another. Now, for this reason, practically speaking, here at the Vine, there are things that are reserved for members alone. If you see a musician uh, up here on stage, it's, it's because they're a church member. You can't serve communion unless you're a member. You can't lead a team unless you're a member of this church. And it isn't because membership makes you special, but because being a member at the Vine, it's, you, you've covenanted yourself to this community. You say wholeheartedly, I agree to the set of beliefs and convictions that guide how it is that we live and love as members of this community. So it would make sense, right, that, that uh, for a person to lead, they would first need to affirm these convictions, Without committing to be all in, uh, you're not qualified, right? You're not living in such a way with your time, with your talent, with your treasures. You're not invested in this community of faith. Now, I get it. Again, this is a little different than, than what we're talking about with the, uh, being a covenant a member of the nation of Israel. I mean, thank the Lord that no one has to get circumcised to be a member here at the Vine. just want to assure you of that. But I, but I wanted us to see that circumcision, it isn't just an empty ritual without meaning. There's deep meaning in circumcision. It was an essential ingredient to, ingredient to being part of God's covenant family, his people. So again, it was a real problem that Moses was heading to Egypt as an ambassador of God's people, and yet his family had never fully become covenant members of Israel. Now, for those of you who heard last week's sermon, Michael um, articulated beautifully that, that God desires our obedience, and he does. There is no question that disobedience was one of the reason that God, reasons that God was angry with Moses. But even more than that, he desires for us to embrace our identity as ones set apart, as members of his community. Romans 12, 4 through 5 describes this as it says, For as in one body we have many members, and the many members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. And so like Moses, we're to obey God's command. We're to identify faithfully as members of one body in Christ and in the church. And so we've seen that we can put our confidence in God's resources and authority. We've seen the fact that he is our father who cares for us. We've seen that we're to put our confidence in his covenant community and this identity we now have in Christ. And finally, we want to look at how we can put our confidence in God's gracious provision. Look at verse 27. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Now, this, this, these verses appear to connect us back with verses 14 and 15, where we learned last week that Moses would meet with his brother Aaron and share with him all that God had instructed him to do, because we learned last week as well that Aaron would become a spokesman for Moses, the one who would verbalize all that God had done and would do through his servant Moses. Look at verse 29. Then the, Moses and Aaron went... <clears throat> And gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel 
and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, it appears that the elders of Israel had needed some convincing, right? Uh, After hearing Aaron explain, though, all that the Lord had told Moses, and after witnessing those miracles, what did they do? They bowed and worshipped. Their hearts were greatly encouraged. They believed that God had heard their pleas for mercy, that he was aware of their suffering, and he was beginning to execute a plan to do something about it. Now, as, as I close this message, what I want you to imagine with me is the significance of this for the original audience. On one side, they had their experience, their present experience, <clears throat> generations of suffering <clears throat> under brutal, brutal conditions and oppression and persecution. But on the other side, they now had this sense of confidence in God, that he'd be true to his word, that he would provide salvation through Moses. And you see, when we look at it this way, I think we can, we can understand it in our own experience. Think about this. On one side, those of you seated here, in your present experience, you may feel insecure or discouraged. In your present experience, you may be struggling with addiction. You may be going through the pain of sickness. You may be dealing with conflict in relationships. But on the other side, if you're a Christian, there is hope. You can have confidence in God. Confidence that your God is a God who saves. That your God is a God who loves to redeem. That your God is a God who loves to restore and reconcile his people. So putting your confidence in God's provision means you're trusting God to work out the mess of your life for, for your good and for his glory. Now, one very tangible example of this can be seen in the Shessman family. Uh, many of you know Sam and Annette Shessman and their kids and you, many of you know that he went through a severe health crisis recently. And with their permission, let me recount just a few of the circumstances of this event. On October 13th, Sam was feeling severe abdominal pain from appendicitis, but was misdiagnosed because there was a virus going on through the family. And, and, and so it took actually three visits to the ER, finally to the ER, finally days later, that it was discovered, no, this wasn't a virus. His appendix had ruptured. And so what ensued over the next three weeks was this roller coaster of events. As Sam was operated on, he was dismissed. He was readmitted hours later, operated on a second time. There were long stays in the hospital, which included continuous treatment, powerful antibiotics, fluctuating fevers, numerous additional infections and abscesses. I mean, it's a very serious situation, and it was a very serious situation. It brought many tears. It brought moments of fear. There were desperate prayers for healing. And and thanks to Annette's faithfulness to actively post updates on Slack, for those of you who are on that Slack platform, many of you participated in praying with them and and served them through it all. Now, I I bring this up because their experience provides a real-life, tangible example of the tension between suffering and confidence in the provision of God. 
And I think this was seen by our church's social network, Slack, because as people checked the prayer and response icons that you can respond to, there were 857 times that, that people responded to Annette's updates just in one of the channels that I observed. There, there were, uh, they were joining, she and Sam, asking God to provide in their time of need. Um, this confidence in God was also illustrated in those of you who visited and prayed on a regular basis. As the elders would come, we would see people there surrounding them in love, supporting them in encouragement, seeking to, to be, bring life and blessing to them, to represent the faithfulness of God in their time of suffering. I think this was also powerfully observed as Annette uh, would post frequently, crying out, for help, that she would share honestly about the agonies that they were experiencing. And, and in one of her darker moments, as I recounted yesterday, and she quoted Isaiah 41.13, where the God and Father had reminded her, For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not. I am the one who helps you. Now, I know that Sam and Annette would be the first to admit that this journey has brought out the best and probably the worst in them as well. But isn't that the point? The very reason we can put our confidence in God is because the challenges of life make us incredibly aware that we're too weak to do it on our own. Like that anchor principle that I mentioned at the beginning of the message When we put our confidence in something outside ourselves, namely God, it gives us the ability to find confidence in our calling and to find confidence in our suffering and to find confidence in our obedience. So to close, I want to encourage you to answer the question, where does your confidence lie? In the midst of all that is before you, Are you putting your confidence in God's resources and authority that are yours in Christ? Are you putting your confidence in the fact that he is your father who cares for you? Are you putting your confidence in his covenant community as you commit to what it means to be a member of this church? Are you putting your confidence in his provision and hope? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you this morning that in a room filled with experiences of suffering, of doubt, of struggle, Lord, that we can all attest in our experience, if we're honest, that we can't do it. Lord, because those of us who've lived life long enough, we know that when we keep going back to our own resources and when we keep depending on our own self-sufficiency, it's disappointing. It really is. And Lord, so we have an unbelievable hope. And I pray, Lord, that that would come crashing down on all of our experiences today in a new and powerful way. And that is that we have a God who cares for us, that we have resources and authority available to us in Christ, that we have the benefits of of God-centered, Christ-honoring community, that we have the joy of knowing that you can be our provision and hope when all else fails. Lord, make that reality so true for us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.